Hey everybody, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor, this is Mark. How you feeling, Mark? I feel like Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits today. How you feeling? Well, I feel like a sun-dried tomato, because it's been just non-stop blaring sunshine in California. I mean, this is what yeah. I'm supposed to... You know, this is what I'm supposed to be the positive. I know it's what I'm supposed to be used to. But, you know, the middle of summer is intense. I had my first moment of like um, when I first got here, I thought it was really interesting. People in California really love rain. And uh, when I first got here, it was one of the most like intense winters, like quote unquote intense winters where they had like a ton of rain. And it's interesting because people in California, since it rains so infrequently, they'll like stand outside. Like, like when it rains, (laughs) you'll just see, you'll just see like old men, like walking outside, like wearing like only a bathing suit and just like walking in the rain. (laughs) And it's really weird. But I had that for, I had that California moment the other day because it rained like a little bit like last week, just like a tiny bit. And I was like, I'm just going to stand out here on my deck, like drinking coffee and letting the rain like get all over me. Cause it's so so dry. (laughs) So, um, yeah, here we are in episode 28. Um, if you're a new listener and you're unaware of the structure of the podcast, it's that, uh, Mark and I each read a book every week, which we find extremely easy to do. And, uh, (laughs) so easy. And, um, I don't know what book he's going to talk about. He doesn't know what book I'm going to talk about. And we kind of take turns. But first, we're also going to play a game, um, a game that Mark invented last week called First In, Last Out. Tell us how you invented this game, Mark. Yeah, yeah. So last week I I was remembering and I I told a story of how when I was like a teenager, I bought this fancy new state of the art two gigabyte memory card and uh, (laughs) I wanted to fit all my music on it. And it was a sad truth that it uh, that wasn't going to work unless I compressed all of it to horrible quality and so that's what i did um so the thought was then you know how would you do that with a book how would you compress a book you you take out every other chapter you know delete some words what are you left with like is it recognizable at all so then i thought like the best version of that would be to take out the everything other than the first and last sentence and see what you're left with Right. So now I have one, two, three, four, five books in front of me. Um, it's Mark's option whether he wants to guess it, uh, if it, this is, you know, there's the game is loosely based on uh, rules. So you don't really have to. <laughs> are you are you going to try to guess? I don't know. I'll try. But, I'll um, try. Uh, you can try to guess the book, but it's also really interesting. We discovered last week that, you know, like some authors were ridiculously tight and it was like, wow, the first sentence and last sentence of their book is awesome. I had Madame Bovary la- uh, last week and it was like both sentences have nothing to do with Emma Bovary, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's start off uh, with my first book. So I will read the first sentence and then I'll read the last sentence. So first sentence is. The boy with fair hair lowered himself down the last few feet of rock and began to pick his way toward the lagoon. Last sentence. He turned away to give them time to pull themselves together and waited, allowing his eyes to rest on the trim cruiser in the distance. Lagoon, huh? Lagoon. (laughs) (laughs) Fair hair. Uh, That's I, I really don't know. Do you want both of them again? No, no, I got them. 
boy with fair hair lowered himself down the rock to the lagoon, and then uh, the cruiser waited for them. I I, I have no idea. <laughs> so this is, this is a book that I know is one of Mark's favorite books. What about that? Does that give you oh, a little bit of a clue? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, so this book is by one William Golding, and it's uh, the Lord of the Flies. Oh shit! <laughs> Lord of the Flies. There's the only real kind of clue in there. I mean, I guess yeah, like a lagoon, like tropical setting. But the only real clue to me was like the cruiser waiting, in the, and that's actually that sentence is about the officer oh, that finds them. You know, that's perfect. Then hey, then you got a nice uh, pipe yeah. opening. I actually, I am surprised that, that that actually is pretty tight. It's like, it's like, yep, there's like a kid in like a, like a lagoon, like a beach type of thing. And then, you know, the cruiser is waiting for them at the end. It's pretty tight. Not a hundred percent, but it's pretty good. See, my memory always tells me that the books, that book starts with like a plane ride or something. I think I'm like mixing up with Lost or something. I don't know. <laughs> I actually think it does. I actually think it does. Like the, the plot of that book, I think is like that the boys were on some sort of like private school, like yeah, plane or something. I would, I would imagine that would be like the first sentence though. I didn't know yeah. it threw it right off with the lagoon, but yeah. All right. Anyways, there you go. <laughs> Fail. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't call that exactly a failure. It's just that I don't think the guessing is part of this game. It's a little, uh, it's a little esoteric, but, um, Okay, so here's my second one without saying the title of the book, obviously. To the red country and part of the gray country of Oklahoma, the last rains came gently, and they, and they did not cut the scarred earth. Last sentence. She looked up and across the barn, and her lips came together and smiled mysteriously. Oh, yeah, that's the Grapes of Wrath. Yes. <laughs> it is the Oklahoma, Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. The barn at the... Uh, I mean, that one is like... The ending is so, like, uh, vivid that, yeah. You just said girl in a barn. I, I knew what you're, yeah. Nice. <laughs> that was my guess, but that, so, yeah. So based on your, you know, based on your read of the novel, is that, like, that's pretty tight, right? I mean, it's, like, Oklahoma and then, like, this, yeah. the famous ending scene. The Okies. It would have been even more <laughs> if he was, like, the barn in california or whatever like yeah yeah you know they made their way across the book but whatever <laughs> yeah so grapes of wrath by steinbeck uh okay first sentence of this next book for many years i claimed i could remember things seen at the time of my own birth and last sentence is some sort of beverage had been spilled on the tabletop and was throwing back glittering threatening reflections i mean that sounds like that sounds like Proust, but I feel like that first sentence would be like 10 times longer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I mean, no, yeah. It's not it's not Proust. <laughs> I actually don't know if you I don't think you've read this book, but it's a book that I it was the book that I did first episode of the podcast. This is Confessions of a Mask by okay. uh, Yuki, uh, by Yukio Mishima. And yeah, that's actually pretty tight. I mean, in his like style, um, for many years, I claimed I could remember things seen from that's from the time of my own birth. That's not as much to do with this book. That's more autobiographical for him because he actually did claim that he could remember his own birth because he's a psychopath. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the last sentence is really good, exemplary. The last sentence, the last part of this yeah, book, run, has, run it back. So the last sentence is: some sort of beverage had been spilled on the tabletop and was throwing back glittering, threatening reflections. 
Um, because the last part of this book is I actually wrote an essay about it in college. Um, nice. The last part of this book is all about he like gives this like metaphor for sunshine being like people who are like straight for for lack of a better kind of term like straight sexually and also like straight in their lives kind of like have figured out the more basic like forms of their identity he like he likens them to being able to like play in the sun whereas he, yeah like is always in shadow so that but it's interesting that like the only thing in that sentence that is a great sentence like a great choice of word is that one word threatening you know if like if you took if you took that out if you took out threatening some sort of beverage had been spilled on the table and was throwing back glittering reflections it's like yeah whatever but threatening reflections is you know i guess that's Hmm. why i guess why that's why mishima's the author that's got to be some bubbly ass drink then. Imagine like <laughs> seltzer or something. Seltzer. What's the seltzer oh, with the okay. biggest so, bubbles? Uh, pol- I always rep Polar Seltzer. Worcester Mass is the best. Um, how far back can you remember? If Mishima sa- says he remembers his birth, like I don't believe that. But Yeah. Well, actually, this is this is a really good exercise. Let's, let's do a mini game within the game because uh, this is something that uh, one of my teachers in school had us do um, in college. Um, so I'm going to tell you my earliest memory, but what I want to do, Mark, is you got to tell me your earliest memory and one of your favorite movie scenes. And then, and then we'll go from there. So tell me your earliest memory and then one of your favorite movie scenes. Hmm. Okay. Earliest memory might be uh, backyard playing with uh, the two Jack Russell Terriers we used to have called uh, Sugar and Spicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, so playing with might, Sugar might and Spicy. Easter, Easter, Easter time or something. Um, playing with sugar and spicy and then what's a what's a favorite film scene uh i really like the intro scene to uh the animated film uh little nemo what's happening in that uh he's flying around on his bed right flying around on his bed so my like professor would like basically what you do is you say those two things and then free associate on top of them my favorite my earliest memory not my favorite memory, my earliest memory is um, being strapped into like a car seat going to, I think I was going to like preschool or like another like very low grade. And basically I remember that my my dad like kept me in my car seat longer than I was supposed to be in it. Like I remember it being like a debate like in my house between my mom and dad of like he doesn't have to be in the car seat anymore. And I would like and I was like, I don't have to be in this car seat. Like I remember thinking that. And then what I said that day in class was one of my favorite scenes is the scene in Akira when the kid is uh, destroying like the whole city, you know, like in the first scene when he's like blowing up like the whole city. Yeah. Um, with his mind or whatever. Not Akira, the other kid, like who's that guy has him. They're like getting chased by dogs, you know? Yeah. And uh, so my professor, like free associating on top of that is sort of like, yeah, like you're restricted. That kid is like letting the his powers like you know takashi is that yeah yeah takashi yeah yeah yeah. takashi and he's like and he's like yeah like you you wished at that moment that you could let your powers explode like of like being restricted so my thing to you would be like you know you were what were the dog's names 
Sugar and spicy. Sugar so and spice. Sh- you sugar were playing with sugar and spice, and that like <laughs> that was like floating on air. Like that was like you know flying through the air of like Nemo is like so happy in that first scene, and you were like definitely like running around like high speed kind of thing. That scene gets dark though. If you if you've seen it, that's uh, so he's like flying around on his bed around like the city of London or whatever, and then he mm-hmm. has a so it's all about him dreaming or whatever, and then he has a nightmare and it's a train fucking trying to chase him down on his bed and it's like mm-hmm. destroying his bed and shit. It, it's a pretty <laughs> crazy scene. So I don't know. Take I guess that changes uh, maybe changes I got, the context. My, my dogs attacked me or something. Uh, so yeah, well know. we both don't remember. <laughs> the point is we both don't remember our birds. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so my first sentence, next book, first sentence. So you're all set for money then, the boy named Crow asks in his typical sluggish voice. Last sentence. You are part of a brand new world. (laughs) What? Boy named Crow? (laughs) Boy named Crow asks in his sluggish voice, and you are part of a brand new world. Uh, I think it's cheap. I'll just, I'll guess. With no mm-hmm. confidence, I'm going to say this is something by, I don't know, Cormac McCarthy, maybe. Just, mm. I'll be wrong. Sorry. No, you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is less impactful than I thought it would be because, you know, I've talked in the podcast before about how I always intensely anticipate the last sentence of a of Haruki Murakami book. Mm-hmm. So this would be the first and last sentence of what I think is my favorite book by him, Kafka on the Shore. And, uh, you know, it, it, like, I think basically like that, the boy named Crow or whatever, that's like one of his, um, you know how he, like, sometimes he deals like in the, in like the not real world. So I think that's like an interstitial of like someone like from magical realism. And then Mm -hmm. the last sentence is just, I guess if I back up a, a few more sentences, it's you finally fall asleep. And when you wake up, it's true. You are part of a brand new world. Um, so I was kind of looking for that to be more impactful, Murakami. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'll do, this is my final book, first last. First in, last out, final book. Uh, the first sentence is, for a long time I used to go to bed early. And the last sentence is, None of them was ever more than a thin slice held between the contigu- contiguous impressions that composed our life at that time. Remembrance of a particular form is but regret for a particular moment, and houses, roads, avenues are as fugitive, alas, as the years. Okay, that's Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely Bruce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> bed. This, is my, this is the first time I've touched upon Swan's Way in the podcast. Trust me. The episode about it is coming, but it's just way too involved to be, you know, I don't even, even 28 episodes into the podcast, I don't think I'm practiced enough to tackle Swan's way. But, um, but yeah, that, that, those are the first, this is the first glimpse of me talking about Swan's way, uh, on the podcast. So for a long time, I used to go to bed early and, uh, none of them was ever more than a thin slice held between the contiguous impressions that composed our life at that time. Remembrance of a particular form is but regret for a particular moment and houses, roads, avenues are as fugitive, alas, as the years. Um, the ending to that book is insanely impactful. Uh, so <laughs> I'll get into that later. But um, but yeah, that's Bruce. I would say that that is pretty tight. 
Yeah. You know? Like that, that was, even though people very wrongly give Proust the, the, the BS of being like, oh, it like wanders around too much and like whatever, that's actually not true at all. But that, that, that was pretty tight. First and last sentence. That's like basically what the entire book is about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going to bed early and having really trippy thoughts about the nature of time <laughs> and objects. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So here we are in episode 28. An even episode number means that I go first, Mark goes second. So uh, another good game of first in, last out. And are you ready to hear about my book? Yeah, let's do it. All right. right. So my book today, um, not a crazy huge novel, not something that I got, you know, I didn't have to burn down a ton of pages this week to read. But um, I recently visited a famous bookshop in LA. Mark, tell me like a story of like a, a pilgrimage to a certain bookshop that you wanted to go to. Can you remember, you know how like every reader has that like thing where it's like, yeah, I want to go to this place. Ah, oh, shit. There's Anywhere plenty. You can recall. <laughs> no, never that none that I've made it to, you know, mm. I don't know. Tell me one that you haven't made it to. Where to what's a bookstore that you'd love to go to? uh okay I, been... I, I guess one here's here i i do have one that i've been to i remember like you would ra- you would like raving about the strand in, in mm-hmm. new york city and i and uh going there was definitely worth it did, it did awesome. we go to this did we go to strand together yeah 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 okay. so this bookshop that i went to um where i picked up my book for today is actually sometimes called the los angeles strand <laughs> it's like there's strand that you know their claim to fame is miles and miles of books and this uh bookstore is probably a little bit more on the independent side than strand strand actually has like a structure of like you know like branded tote bags and you know books mm-hmm. that they like i think they even have like books that they put out themselves and stuff like that uh, this bookstore is called the Iliad Bookshop in Los Angeles, and it's probably a slightly more on the independent side, but just as many miles and miles of books. Pretty impressive um, stacks. The fiction, the like fiction novel section is like the size of a small library, and it's pretty <laughs> good. They have like a section that's just um, like the same thing as literary fiction, but just paperbacks, which is very helpful. Um, nice. Cause that's pretty much the only thing you ever want. But so yeah, I was browsing the stacks and I found um, a, sh- a collection of short stories by um, a young man named Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. You might know him as F Scott Fitzgerald. And he wrote such famous books as this side is paradise, the beautiful and the damned, the great Gatsby and tender as the night. Those are the four novels that he finished during his life. Have you, You've read some F. Scott Fitzgerald. You've been required uh, to read it. <laughs> I've read three of those. Okay. Oh, you've read three. I've only read Gatsby. I've only read Gatsby. Did not, have not gotten to uh, Beautiful and the Damned. Okay, so you've it. read This Side of Paradise and Tender is the Night. Yeah. So my book today, and maybe specifically two short stories within this short story collection, is... Um, a short story collection called Flappers and Philosophers. And it was it was published immediately after This Side of Paradise. So like This Side of Paradise comes out, 
That's Fitzgerald's first novel. I'm not going to go into too much autobiographical information about Fitzgerald because he's just so there's a lot fam- there. <laughs> there's just so famous and like it's been picked apart so much that. But what's interesting about Fitzgerald though too is like you know he's he's in that like class of like Hemingway-sized American writers where people have really picked apart his life. But then you also kind of look back on it and it's like okay, four novels and. Lots of short stories, actually, 164 short stories in magazines during his lifetime, which is pretty impressive. Actually, the introductory essay by Arthur Misener in my um, in my copy of Flappers and Philosophers, which I think is is in almost like every copy. And it's like a pretty famous introductory essay. He talks about how um, if you look at Fitzgerald's life, there's scarcely any three month period that's not represented by some sort of short story from when his career began. So that's pretty impressive. Like if you, if you think about, you know, just being, being a writer, starting your career as a writer and basically his, and also we're talking about a different time here. We're talking about, 1920 well he was born in 1896 and leading up into when this side of paradise was published in 1920 um he you know there's a three there's a there's a short story for every three months of his life except when he was like a hollywood writer so that's pretty impressive um he was famously um he was famously married and had a kind of a contentious marriage with Zelda Fitzgerald, who later in her life was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he actually, it's pretty sad. Like, I mean, I knew this, but it doesn't really hit you until you start reading it and start reading him and stuff like that. But he dies of a heart attack at the age of 44 after being like a super heavy drinker, like known to be like a huge boozer, Um, which is kind of interesting. Like it's an interesting, at least to me, I don't know why I kind of like compartmentalize these things in my head, but like Fitzgerald to me seems like so buttoned up. And I guess in a way, like he's one of those people for me that like he doesn't exist outside of like, like the sepia toned photographs, you know, like it's just Mm -hmm. like, he seems like sort of like a buttoned up guy who writes like, you know, pared down, like buttoned up prose. But then at the same time, he was like a famous yeah it's the name too it's the name (laughs) right well also let's go into the name because something that i discovered in researching for the podcast is you know his full name is francis scott key fitzgerald and he actually was distantly related his second cousin francis scott key who do you know what francis scott key wrote uh the uh Declar- the not declaration the um star spangled banner right the star spangled banner yeah so i mean I'm, f scott fitzgerald had america in his blood <laughs> um <laughs> which maybe makes sense like after after reading about that i was like maybe it makes sense that he was like such an epic uh you know um person who who represented you know the excess of the 1920s and the jazz age. So let's talk about um, the 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 name of this collection. It's called Flappers and Philosophers. One thing that I will say about this is that I'm going to talk about two um, short stories that are in the beginning of the book. And what was interesting to me about this was I read one short story called The Offshore Pirate and another one called The Ice Palace. And I kind of want to compare and contrast them. But what was interesting to read and I'll say right off the bat, the story, The Offshore Pirate, it was interesting to me because it was like, you're reading Ed Scott Fitzgerald. It's like, he's amazing. Like, oh my God, everything is going to be, you know, like it should be treated like the Bible of American literature and stuff like that. And I got to say, Offshore Pirate just plain sucks. 
Like it's just like <laughs> not a very good short story. Like I like it is there are things in it. Like I can I'm gonna call out a few sentences and paragraphs where it's like, okay, yeah, this is a, like this is somebody who's like a burgeoning writer. But what's interesting about you know, flappers and philosophers is that you know how I like to read people's debut novels, which this side of paradise was was his debut novel, but Flappers and Philosophers is actually a collection of short stories that his publisher, Scribner, basically his first novel gets accepted, This Side of Paradise. And uh, it does super well. It does like crazy well. I think uh, I think I read somewhere that it like its first run was like 47,000 copies or something like that, which is a big deal back then. And um, so then his publisher basically says, yeah, your like first novel is doing well. So we want to bind together like a bunch of your short stories. And then he has to come together. Like he has to come forward and say, here are the short stories that I want you to publish. And they chose a few and he chose a few. So this is really material that is coming from before his first novel. And it was interesting to read The Offshore Pirate and think that it sucked. And then as I research, you know, get myself together for the podcast, it's like, okay, well, first of all, when The Side of Paradise was published, which obviously he put more effort into his novels than into his short stories, he was only 24 years old. So God damn you, F. Scott Fitzgerald, for being a good writer at that young. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that made me, that was an interesting per, like perspective switch once I was like, yeah, these kind of stink. But then I was like, oh, but he's also like 24. Like I've never, you know, met any shithead that I meet nowadays who's 24 years old. I don't expect them to turn out, you know, golden short stories. Mm. But um, yeah, so. Flappers and Philosophers, I want to talk about the title of where that comes from. I couldn't actually find exactly the reference to that uh, Meisner is talking about in his intro, but it kind of seems like um, it came from like a literary magazine or a something like either a literary magazine or like his publisher Scribner early on had described his first novel this way, but... So this side of paradise comes out and I think someone I couldn't even find the direct quote, which was kind of like miffing me a little bit. But basically, I think someone had called this side of paradise that novel about flappers for philosophers. Oh, <laughs> so so basically, do you know what a flapper is, Mark? Uh Sort of, but I wouldn't know how to describe it. Take <laughs> I know, a guess. Like, Take a guess. I know the outfit. OK. You know the uh, outfit. Well, it's, it's like the a, outfit. isn't it like a twenties like is it like a party girl kind of thing? Is yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> well, first I, of all, so we're actually we're coming up on the 2020s, and right. uh, so people this this New Year's Eve, there's definitely gonna like definitely gonna be people doing like flapper like. Oh yeah, parties, I right? mean we're we're coming yeah. up on the new 20s, and I do I I do believe I believe for a while that there's gonna be like a resurgence in like 20s culture. Like people are gonna be News having caps like, and shit, jazz parties <laughs> and drinking champagne and just you know oh it's the 20s again blah blah blah. Um, but yeah, flapper was a general from Wikipedia. Uh, there were a generation of young Western women in the 1920s who wore skirts, bob their hair, listened to jazz, and flaunted their disdain for what was then considered acceptable behavior. So you. You know, basically, you know, a flapper is, oh, I wear a skirt when I'm not supposed to. I wear, you know, those, their bobbed hair, you know, those like skull caps that they wear, like those 1920s hats and kind of, you know, I don't follow the rules, kid, um, that kind of thing. And what's interesting about the first two stories. So, like I said, Offshore Pilot, 
pirate and the ice palace, um, the main character is, you know, the main characters are, you know, flappers. And it's also interesting because um, in the beginning, and I'll get in that introductory essay, it kind of like, I think some people intellectually give him a little bit of a pass for like, you know, to me, the offshore pirate is like not a very good story. But there's this is also a time, you know, pre-1920 that you could F. Scott Fitzgerald believed that his career, like he was like, I am a professional writer and I write for magazines, like what they want to be published. You know, there was novels and there was being an artist and there was doing art with a capital A. And then there, he was also like, this was a time when you could write short stories and have them published. And like, that's what would like pay your bills, which is like a thing in the past at this point, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So there's that factor in it too. A lot of the people who talk about this book and this collection of short stories are like, yeah, it's fascinating because he was um he was kind of like paying the bills so i don't want to get too much into it because it's not a story that i love a lot but the offshore pirate is about um you know a 19 year old blonde girl a flapper basically who is on a boat she's on a yacht with her uncle so obviously they're like pretty well off and they're in the middle of the ocean there's like some reference to the idea that she um is soon to be married or she's going to give her engagement or her or give herself in marriage to somebody who's back on shore and it's called the offshore pirate because basically this jazz band of um this jazz band led by one white guy is they board the boat and they're basically like we're pirates who are going to take over this boat um and you know i'm a dashing young man with an interesting backstory and since she's such a rebel you know she's like fine with it basically like once when they when they board the boat she's like yeah i don't really care much i'm just gonna sit here and smoke cigarettes and flirt with this guy who's boarding my uncle's boat um and then the thing that i really hated about like the end of the story was basically he wraps it up by like his uncle like her uncle and his friend like come up like they get boarded by you know other people who it's like oh no the jig is up like the authorities are here and they figured out that we docked your boat in this like kate in this like uh you know lagoon or whatever and then basically her uncle is like haha it was a ruse the whole time so you would fall in love with this young man and me and my friend came up with this so that you would like fall like we basically are setting you up with this guy who we let be a pirate for a day and she's like yeah that was really clever like that was amazing i do love him and it's like what the hell is going on here but um you know, I think it's interesting too. I think Fitzgerald actually had, uh, like in my research for the book, um, he actually did have a quote, which I respected a lot after like reading it and being like, what, like these are weird stories. I, I also found a quote from Fitzgerald, which was pretty good where basically, I don't think that he had like kind of like high, I think that we put a lot of pressure on somebody who's like, okay, it's S. Fitzgerald. It's supposed to be amazing. But then there was one quote from him where he was like, my short story, like some of my short stories were like, you know, they were a device for whiling away an hour in, in a busy dentist's office, you know, like don't <laughs> like get like too crazy, you know? Um, which I kind of respected that. But to pull out one paragraph that I felt was true Fitzgerald from The Offshore Pirate, just to give you a flavor of, you know, the 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 real author was shining through. Um, I liked a lot of the descriptions of weather and, and, and um, the scenery in The Offshore Pirate. So here's this short paragraph. 
And then dawn slanted dynamically across the deck and flung the shadows reeling into gray corners. The dew rose and turned to golden mist, thin as a dream, enveloping them until they seemed gossamer relics of the late night, infinitely transient and already fading. For a moment, sea and sky were breathless, and dawn held a pink hand over the young mouth of life. Then from out in the lake came the complaint of a rowboat and the swish of oars. You know, some nice, like, writing. Like, it's basically, like, even though it's this crappy, like, you know, dime store story about this, like, weird thing. Um, there's some nice kind of Fitzgerald stuff in there. And then I'll go on to also say uh, the second story that I read from this book was called The Ice Palace. And what's interesting about this is that um, it's kind of almost like a development on the, on the first one. It's like, I don't know the exact order of when Offshore Pirate was published versus... Um, Versus the Ice Palace. The Ice Palace is like way better of a story. Um, but it's interesting because it goes along with that same thing. Like the the story of Offshore Pirate, Pirate began with, you know, oh, there's like this young woman who's got blonde hair and she's sitting on the deck of her father, of her uncle's boat. And then the Ice Palace kind of begins like almost in the same way. Like he was interested in this archetype because it's like, there's a woman named Sally Sally Carol Happer, and she's just resting her head on like a windowsill, and it's a hot summer day in the South, and uh, she's soon engaged to be married to a guy who's gonna, you know, who's like, who's going to, uh, you know, she's she's gonna give her hand away to a guy like a like a Yankee, basically like a Northern guy. And uh, her friends are like, take her down to the swimming hole. And, and she's like, no, I am going to the north. I'm going to like be myself. So it's like, it's sort of interesting. Like he definitely was interested in this like archetype of, um, you know, oh, there's like this young woman and she's like, she's promised to someone and blah, blah, blah. Um, the thing that's interesting about the Ice Palace is that I found it to be um, very um Interesting in terms of like Americana, because basically the story is Sally Carroll, she's moving into the north from the south and she's moving there during the winter. So it's like the first time that she's seen snow. And it's an interesting thing where she's basically interacting with this northern family and Fitzgerald who um, lived all around the country, but did have like exposure. He was born in Minnesota, but then he came to New York. Then he spent time at Princeton and New Jersey and stuff like that. So he did move around the country a bit. Um, but the tension between North and South, I found interesting and probably more lasting, um, in the area of the 1920s than it is now. But it was sort of interesting just because he is talking about North versus South in like a very interesting way. She kind of, Sally Carroll has these sort of things where it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't like his mom because she refused to call. She only called me Sally. She wouldn't call me Sally Carroll, which is like a southern thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, basically they they she has all of these like problems with her integration into this family in the north. So I'm going to read a, just a page from it. This is Sally Carroll talking to one of her uh, her husband, Harry, this is her talking to one of his friends, which is which is sort of interesting. I found a lot of stuff in here to be interesting commentary that may still even be lasting about North versus South in America. So uh, Harry's I think she's talking to Harry's friend, Scott. So he starts out by saying, not at all. I'm interested. I used to have a theory about these people. I think they're freezing up. She says, what? I think they're growing like Swedes, Ibsen-esque, you know, very gradually getting gloomy and melancholy. It's these long winters. Have you ever read any Ibsen? She shook her head. 
Well, you find in his characters a certain brooding rigidity. They're righteous, narrow and cheerless, without infinite possibilities for great sorrow or joy. She says, without smiles or tears? Exactly. That's my theory. You see, there are thousands of Swedes up here. They come, I imagine, because the climate is very much like their own, and there's been a gradual mingling. There are probably not a half a dozen here tonight, but we've had four Swedish governors. Am I boring you? No, I'm very interested. Your future sister-in-law is half Swedish. Personally, I like her, but my theory is that Swedes react badly on us as a whole. Scandinavians, you know, have the largest suicide rate in the world. Why do you live here if it's so depressing? Oh, it doesn't get to me. I'm pretty well cloistered, and I suppose books mean more than people to me anyway. But writers all speak about the South being tra tragic. You know, Spanish senoritas, black hair and daggers and haunting music. He shook his head. No, the northern races are the tragic races. They don't indulge in the cheering luxury of tears. Sally Carroll thought of her graveyard. She supposed that that, that was vaguely what she had meant when she, when she said it didn't depress her. And I'll give you guys a hint that she used to hang out in a graveyard in the South. So he goes on to say, the Italians are about the gayest people in the world, but it's a dull subject. He broke off. Anyway, I want to tell you, you're marrying a pretty fine man. Sally Carroll was moved by an impulse of confidence. I know I'm the sort of person who wants to be taken care of after a certain point, and I feel and I feel sure I will be. Shall we dance? You know, he continued as they rose. It's encouraging to find a girl who knows what she's marrying for. Nine tenths of them think it's sort of walking into a moving picture sunset. Sunset. She laughed and liked him immensely. So there's like a lot of, so like obviously there's like a lot of weird stuff about like Swedes in there and like Ibsen and our people who are from the Northeast really just like transplants of Scandinavia. I don't know if that's true being someone from the Northeast, but it's like sort of interesting. Like I think he's basically saying, you know, like the South is like Gothic and dramatic and like you guys might be like crying or like, you know, big joy and big sadness and stuff like that. And he's like, but actually here, like in the North where people are buttoned up, it's like like very tragic because they don't express their emotions, mm -hmm. um, which I find something that in my experience would, would is like still a lasting and, and nice observation. Um, and also that very last sentence, I think that very last thing before they start, um, before they go to dance is actually interesting biographically for um, Fitzgerald. Again, I didn't exact like 100% pinpoint when the Ice Palace was um, published, but he said, uh, you know, Sal Sally Carroll says, I'm the sort of person who wants to be taken care of after a certain point, and I feel sure that I will be, basically justifying her engagement to this northerner. And what's interesting biographically about Fitzgerald is that he initially got together with Zelda and she wouldn't accept his proposal until it was like concrete that he was a well-off writer, which is sort of interesting. Um, like there was a period of time in their life where she was like, nah, like, never mind. Like you're kind of just like this writer who like lives in your parents' house. And then he was like, yeah, but then I, but then I published this novel. Like I'm like an actual writer now. Like we're going to be like fine. And my books are going to be made into movies and stuff. And then, and that was what she eventually agreed because of success, which is like sort of like sort of an interesting thing that he was either prescient about that or knew about it. And that kind of goes, that, that was folds. his motivation. Right. But that folds into my one star review. Um, Flappers and Philosophers is a great like collection. I would definitely suggest it. Not only like don't be into it for like, oh, like like every story is going to be amazing. I would actually say be into it because you're going to know that you like there's this writer that you inherently basically as an American like have to respect. But then you're going to be reading stuff where it's a little bit rocky, which honestly gives me more confidence to, you know, write and, and, and you know, just try things out. 
but um i, I the like whole... the thought of i like the thought of him uh you know jotting down ideas or writing shit like this and like you said a, a dentist's office or whatever yeah like it's just not <laughs> like it's not you know it's not gonna bring it not everything's gonna bring you to a higher plane of existence we can't all be proust but, but practice um, makes perfect practice like, makes perfect yeah and and uh, so my one star review also has a hint of some stuff that I would like to talk about about Zelda just before we go, because obviously they had a famous contentious relationship. It's I also learned from researching for the book that Fitzgerald was known to have read his wife's diary and like directly taken things from it, like taken just like like apparently <laughs> apparently in her own right. She you know, she was. Well, not apparently, definitely in her own right. She was her, she was like an amazing writer. And some of his friends would even be like, maybe we should publish Zelda's like diaries because like they're really amazing and like interesting. So that kind of folds into my one star review, which is from user Bam the Bibliomaniac on Goodreads. <laughs> says this is not his best writing i get i'm guessing zelda didn't help much these stories just kept him in the buck in the bucks i'm not shying away from reading his novels because of these short stories but i don't feel like these reflect his talent um pretty solid succinct review don't shy away from reading his novels which he obviously kept in higher regard than his short stories to get him by and uh yeah this was probably a point in his life when zelda wasn't helping out as much as she did later so uh check out flappers and philosophers by Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, nineteen twenty. <laughs> do you can do you consider yourself a bibliomaniac? That's Am I a bibli? Yeah, I don't know. Am I a bibliomaniac? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe for certain authors, I I feel like the term biblio almost goes into like bibliography. Like I feel like though that would be like if you are obsessed with reading everyone's full collection of novels or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, but biblio also means book. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a book maniac. Yes, I'm a bibliomaniac. Yes, <laughs> good. <laughs> All right, nice. That sounds good. Some F. Scott Fitzgerald. We're slowly covering every author in the world. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can get slowly, there. slowly. Mm. Twenty uh, twenty eight deep. No, uh, double that. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start mine now. Full honesty, I did not read a single word this week. I made a point to not read anything. Wow. Uh, I wanted to take a take a little break, decompress, cover something that I read a few years ago, and, you know, it still ended up being a lot of work preparing. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right, trying to remember everything. Um, so I want to start and just uh, talk about a feeling that I hope is relatable. Well, uh, I'm sure it's relatable. Have you have you ever liked something like so much that you didn't want to tell anyone about it? You became you were like protective of it, like for whatever reason, you just kept it, enjoyed it by yourself. Yeah, yeah. This is like, you know, I think maybe I do end up eventually sharing most of everything in my life with at least someone. But I know the feeling that you're talking about of like. I think it often happens with people in music as well. Like, oh, like I discovered this band like for yeah. <laughs> myself, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, I could say yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's that feeling. And then there's, you know, sometimes you like something so much, maybe even to the same amount, but for whatever reason you want to tell everyone about it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because you trick yourself into being like, oh, this is just for me. But it's like the only person you're not telling is like, 
your friends and stuff. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's something, something like, like you say, music, you know, thousands of other people are listening to it, but you're like, this is mine. Um, and it's probably like a stranger concept now because I guess the modern, modern version of that is like, I'm not going to share it online or on social media, you know? It's like right, yeah. talking about it to people around you is whatever, but then like broadcasting broadcasting it to the world is where you draw the line. Like, oh, this is just for me and my friends or whatever. Yeah, that's um, interesting. It's like we've almost developed kind of like a second layer. Because you're right, yeah. like, fa- like face-to-face, I would never care about like anything these days. But now it's sort of like, oh, am I going to take my love of this you know, particular thing out into like, quote unquote, public record, public record. Yeah. (laughs) You get roasted for it. Open yourself (laughs) up for it. Yeah. Um, so anyways, the book, the book I want to discuss this week is something I read, um, probably three, four years ago, enjoyed it a whole lot. And I just never, I never talked about it. Um, so finally, uh, going to talk about it. All right. Uh, so you talked about it with me. No, Oh my god! I uh, I don't think I have. Let's see. Mark's, I about, to do, to... Mark's about to do Twilight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> closet Twilight fan. Uh, I always I always like describing things as a mix of other things, so you can relate to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this book that I'm going to cover today has a a great list of ingredients. So let me know if this mix sounds good. Uh, first of all, labyrinth. It's got the. Uh, absurdity and sort of the setting of labyrinth the you know jim henson movie from the 80s with david bowie okay yeah one of my favorite movies so you got that uh how about the adams family maybe like the uh the, the characters types of characters from the adams family okay uh, we're, we're 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 silly gothic right now we're horror we're horror comedy charles dickens the okay. uh relationships and betrayals and social dynamics of, of charles dickens um the thing that we mentioned way too much, Lord of the Rings. It's got the, the lore, the sort of lore background and depth of Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, the artist, Gustav Doré. The uh, grotesqueness of description and a- actual drawings, because this is a book that has accompanying illustrations. Nice. Um, uh, the movie Eraserhead, maybe. Okay. More some more grotesqueness, some more weird. So let me admit every. I mean everything that you said. Some things. Let me ask you this: Do you imagine this like novel to be or whatever it is to be occurring in black and white? Yes, like, because like a lot the of things. Illustrations that, are black and white. Yeah, a lot of things that you've said have been sort of like dark. I mean, a labyrinth is like in color, but you know, just like a basic kind of like neutral black and white tone. Yep, and then uh, uh, the video game series Castlevania. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for re- these reasons, will become obvious later for, for, okay. for Castlevania. Um, oh, the last one. The gothness of the cure. Mm. Just pure goth. <laughs> Melancholy. Yes. Um, so how does that sound? How does that mixture sound? It sounds great. It sounds like something that I would be into. So I'm talking about the gothic fantasy masterpiece uh, Titus Grown by Mervyn Peake. Whoa. And this Never heard is... of this in my life. 
and I want to touch on that because this is it's not popular when you compare it to other things or things that it you know definitely influenced uh so this titus groan it's the first book of what's called the gormenghast trilogy mm-hmm. um and then 1946 like i said keep in mind that means that this was published after the hobbit but before the lord of the rings okay yep yeah. so i'm going to introduce by reading a section of an article from uh the guardian by Marcus Sedgwick, circa 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and the article was about how Tolkien had become, you know, Tolkien's a household name, but like not a lot of people know about Mervyn Peak. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Titus Groan was ahead of its time. Furthermore, it was and remains very, very strange indeed. This was why it blew me away at the age of 15. I had never read anything so weird, and I loved it for that. This perhaps, too, has been part of its love-hate struggle with the literary world. For some people, it is just too peculiar, but even those that may like it may never come across it simply because it defies classification and easy journalism. The usual term for it is gothic fantasy, and though that's a useful enough shorthand, it does pigeonhole the work somewhat, which can be limiting, especially when it's a pigeonhole with nothing else in it. That's a shame, because there is such splendor to be found in Peake's most important work. There is darkness, yes, but there is also gentleness, humor, pathos, beauty, tragedy, and a love of the written word, and how it can elucidate human nature. That means Pike Peak, sorry, deserves a wider readership. He defies categorization, and yet, whether they be a major figure like Dickens or an obscure one like H.P. Lovecraft, the number of their fans is not what makes them classic. It is the depth of their gift. Hmm. Yeah, so Mervyn Peak. So that's spelled M E R V Y N, P A K E. He was an Mervyn Englishman. Pe- is that his real name? I believe so. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'd have to double check that. But so uh, so he was he was born in China. Uh, he was an Englishman, but he was born in China because his father was a missionary doctor who traveled a lot, uh, and you know he's one of those people who is gifted was gifted to the level of it being you know annoying when you go read (laughs) his accomplishments he was like a fantastic artist first of all who happened to also be really talented at writing Hmm. um and you know part of what makes the gormengast trilogy so compelling is that he provided the accompanying illustrations to it oh that's so you know yeah, it's not like an interpretation by someone else. You know, it's right from the source. So I would. There's a, while I'm there's talking, a, there's a Russian. There's a Russian saying that uh, that translates to the talented man is talented in everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that imply that applies to peak, I guess. Yeah. So even you know even if you don't want to read this giant trilogy, which I think it's like each book's like. 350 pages or something so it gets in the the collection i have of all three is thick mm-hmm. so even if you don't want to read this giant trilogy i would implore you to at least check out his drawings so while i'm while i'm talking right now can you pull up your phone and just check out some of his illustrations yes i can yeah and i, I was trying to think of a parallel for like an should i look who, should i look for titus groan or should i look for uh Peak? yeah just titus groan mervyn peak illustrations i guess um I was trying to think of like a parallel for an author who illustrates their own work. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's sort of like, you know, a more rare version of a singer songwriter or maybe like, 
uh, a restaurant chef who's also an architect, like, you know, yeah, or, or writer, writer, director, like of films. Yeah. 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 He's got some so, crazy illustrations. A lot of it's like most it's like a lot remind of, you of like, Doré. Yeah. Like cross stitching, but it, it's like Doré, but not like not block prints like on paper. Yeah. Basically. So anyways, you know, he feels like someone who should be more famous. So I'll mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about his life before I actually jump into the plot of this book. Uh, so he was a popular illustrator in London, the 30s and 40s. He was uh, commissioned to do portraits of famous people like uh, Laurence Olivier and uh, others. Mm -hmm. uh, and he illustrated scenes from uh, World War II for British newspapers. And it's an interesting factoid. And um, I read this. I did not fact check it. So it's whatever. <laughs> but I think... He's the only person whose like portrait in the National Portrait Gallery in uh, in London is a self portrait. Oh, okay. That might not be um, true, but it's still... <laughs> whatever. Don't hold me to it. But it's cool to know that he's doesn't in that sound gallery? cool? Yes. But uh, so yeah. In addition to his own books, he illustrated some works by Lewis Carroll, like *A Hunting of the Snark* and *Alice in Wonderland*. So you're probably mm -hmm. familiar with his work. You've probably seen his *Alice in Wonderland* stuff. Um. He's also commissioned to illustrate uh, some editions of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and uh, yeah, his Wiki his Wikipedia article slash you know his his biography is really interesting. So I would ask you to check it out. Uh, so okay, now to actually talk about Titus Grown, um, I, you know, I felt I felt sort of like the kid from the Never Ending Story reading this book. I was like, whoa. <laughs> the power of reading like <laughs> it's like a movie in my head oh my god yeah um so this book it throws you into the world of the gormenghast castle it's a giant mc escher slash hr geiger uh structure it's like it's almost like it's expanding or and it's collapsing. It's it's really crazy description of the mm -hmm. castle, um, and you don't know what the world is like outside. Uh, you're just inside this castle. This castle it seems like it's been around for millennia. It's run entirely by ancient ritual with all these old rules and these all these formalities, and you basically got like an Adams family esque royal family with mm -hmm. these awesome names like. Sepulcrave, um, the Earl of Grone, his <laughs> daughter Fuchsia, stuff like that, and you know a legion of servants and others who inhabit the castle. So the you know the castle itself is like this alive, breathing thing, and there's all these people. Um, and you know the basis of the story. Would you have a, any questions? Well, I mean, not really questions, but it's coming across to me like it would sound. It's kind of sounds like almost like. <laughs> Let's just pile every single thing that this trilogy could be because it kind of sounds like a little bit like Hogwarts E, but also a little bit like um, Have you read House of Leaves? No. So House of Leaves is like about this house that's like haunted and it's like sort of like growing and expand. Like one day you go into the room and then the next day it's like six inches shorter, or like three feet yeah. longer, and like stuff like that. I. And when I say that, it's like growing, expanding. That's more of just like the feeling that you get. But yeah, I I, mm -hmm. I remembered that part of uh, House of Leaves. And I would argue that this is like a, a deeply, deeply influential work for, uh, yeah, stuff like Hogwarts or stuff like Harry Potter, stuff, you know, all this fantasy mm -hmm. stuff that came after it. 
So, so the basis of the story here is you're in this castle. The, uh, the countess has just given birth to a boy who they named Titus, a.k.a. You know, Titus Grown. It's the title of the novel. Right. So, you know, this means that there's finally a male heir because up to that point, the royal family had produced uh, three daughters. So there's this, you know, swell of activity that accompanies the birth. And so now, like, you know, you think the story is going to be about Titus. Um, but, you know, the first book in the trilogy only covers two years in time. So Titus is a baby the entire time. It's really about what's going on around him. It's the, like, change in power. People who thought that, you know, they might be the heir. Um, suddenly there's a male heir. It's, it's, everything's changing. And the mm -hmm. birth sort of interrupts the daily equilibrium of the castle and all the, all the formalities and everything. And, you know, with, a, with the birth of the child, there becomes all these new rituals they have to perform and stuff. Um, but outside of that, the main person that really drives this story is a character called uh, Steerpike. That's S-T-E-E-R-P-I-K-E. -E. Uh, he's this 17-year-old who he works in the kitchen of the castle. Um, under the uh, the head chef who is this just super gigantic and grotesque person called Swelter. So I'd ask you to look look up that illustration of this of Swelter. Titus Grown Swelter. Yes. He's uh, just this wildly sadistic and menacing figure. Mm -hmm. And um, so but Steer Steerpike, you know, he has this ruthless ambition. Uh, and then the story just becomes about him. He drives the story by escaping the kitchen and trying, you know, basically spending the whole book weaseling his way to a higher spot on the social ladder. And he has this sort of manipulative, a lot of people say it's a Machiavellian rise to, you know, um, rise to power through like a bunch of different means. He's extremely cunning. He's very evil. Um, he finds many, many ways to take advantage of people through their naivety or just pitting people's ambitions against themselves. Um, he's a, just a fantastic villain. Uh, he's like sort of like a Iago from Othello or some, you know, something like that mm -hmm. taken to the max. I think there's a Dickens character, uh, Uriah Heep, that he is compared to often. Nice. Uh, so there's a ton of amazing characters in this book. I don't want to like give away a lot of the plot because you know there's a lot of amazing twists and turns and very vivid scenes that uh, people talk about a lot. I mean, you can spoil the plot easily by by just searching, you know, Titus Grown or whatever. But um, uh, I'll talk about a couple characters. So Lord Lord Sepulcrave, he's the seventy sixth Earl of Grown. So that kind of tells you how long this family has been going on. And because of that, like, you don't, there's an argument that this could be a post-apocalyptic novel, like, because there's some sort of, like, the people are not very, some most of them are not very human-like, you know, there's some strange uh, defects and other things, and you, you hear about how long this family's been around, you like, and you don't know what's going on outside the castle, like, there's kind of uh, arguments have been made that this is, like, post apocalyptic or anything but um so this lord sepulcrave he's super melancholy dude and his life is just run 24 7 by tradition and he has all these ridiculous rules he has to live by and all these uh rituals and stuff he's gonna do uh his his wife is the countess gertrude 
she basically kind of is disinterested in the family and she's kind of like a detached sort of character, but she's this very imposing figure. Um, and I know you don't like this cause this is a literary trope you didn't like, but she, part of her mystique, part of her description is having dark red hair. So she like sticks out. Um, she's also got like a legion of birds and white cats that follow her around like a ton of them. So that's like a really cool, um, visual. It's not that I hate red hair. It's that I hate if an <laughs> I, th- I hate if an author uses it to like somehow just like sweep significance under the rug. You know, like in, in like a, in like the first description of a character, if they're like, and you know, they were special because they have red hair. But uh, <laughs> she seems okay. Yeah, no, I would say she has more uh, uh, more description past that that you know adds to her. Uh, adds to her as an imposing figure. Uh, another character, another one that people love, like Steerpike is one person that, you know, gets a lot of attention and Fuchsia, their, their daughter, Fuchsia grown. Uh, she's a 15 year old. She's probably the deepest character. She's like really straddles a childish and mature kind of personality. Um, there's also Flay, who's like the head servant to uh, Lord Sepulcrave, he's like fiercely loyal, fiercely rigid when it comes to the rules and rituals and everything. He's a very interesting character. Um, the castle itself is basically a character, like I said, and I just want to, I'm going to read the opening paragraph of the book just to give you an idea of the style, set the scene with this castle. Gormengast, that is, the main massing of the original stone taken by itself would have displayed a certain ponderous architectural quality were it possible to have ignored the circumfusion of those mean dwellings that swarmed like an epidemic around its outer walls. They sprawled over the sloping earth, each one halfway over its neighbor until, held back by the castle ramparts, the innermost of these hovels laid hold on the great walls, clamping themselves thereto like limpets to a rock. These dwellings by ancient law were granted this chill intimacy with the stronghold that loomed above them. Over their irregular roofs would fall throughout the seasons, the shadows of time-eaten buttresses, of broken and lofty turrets, and most enormous of all, the shadow of the Tower of Flints. This tower, patched unevenly with black ivy, arose like a mutilated finger from among the fists of knuckled masonry and pointed blasphemously at heaven. At night the owls made of it an echoing throat. By day it stood voiceless and cast its long shadow. So another part of this guy, Mervyn Peak, is that he was a uh, he was a poet as well. So you know he approaches the writing of a novel that same sort of way, where everything is, you know, his vocabulary is huge. He um, writes very eloquently. You know, it it does just it, and then like the same thing with him being an illustrator with a painter. Like it paints a, a, a images in your head, and it's it's uh, just very very awesome to read. Hmm. So you'd wonder, you know, why hasn't this been made into an HBO series or whatever? Um, <laughs> well, there was, there actually was, there was a series made in 2000 from, uh, co-produced by the BBC and uh, I think one of the PBS stations in Boston, maybe. Um, okay. So yeah, in 2000, that covers the first two books. Um, I don't know if it's good or not. I've not seen it. Why did they do just, just the first two books? That's kind of interesting. So here's the, uh, I didn't get into this fully, but, um, so Mervyn Peake, he, 
he wrote the first two books, and by the time he was working on the third book, he finished most of it, but he had a lot of struggles with his health. I think he had he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. He had dementia. Um, I read some anecdotes about, you know, his wife would attach, uh, like, notes to his clothing. Like, you know, if, if, if found, like, please call mm-hmm. this number or return to this address or whatever. Like, he, he, he had a lot of issues with his health and mm-hmm. he died before he really finished. I think he was actually working on a fourth one. Uh, but okay. uh, the thing is, so, like, the first book is Titus Grown. I have I've read only like maybe half of the second one and that kind of jumps ahead to when Titus is actually like almost an adult or whatever so he's like a lot more impactful in the story um and then I think like he's just approaching like manhood like when he was kind of right like continue writing so I think it's only a trilogy because he uh his health kind of made it that way mm-hmm. um so yeah, in addition to that series in 2000, like that miniseries, there was in the 80s, um, this is definitely something I'm going to check out because it's a little bit easier to uh, digest than a whole TV series, but um, the BBC produced two 90-minute radio plays based on the first two books, nice. um, starring Sting <laughs> from the, the police as Steerpike. <laughs> Interesting. Which is really cool because, you know, I thought about it a little bit and Sting did a bunch of interesting projects in the 80s that I, like, respect a lot. Mm. He was in Dune. Right. Yeah, he was one of the Harkonnens in Dune. He it's almost his, like you uh, could, I could almost see, like, in an alternate universe, like, Sting is, like, the stand-in for Bowie in the Labyrinth. Like, it could, like, yeah, that, yeah. that's how, like, yeah. Um, he was also in uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes, yeah. In the very beginning, he was the heroic officer who they killed for being heroic. I forget how that <laughs> story goes, but... Anyway, so this um, this shitty book report was messy because I liked this book so much, and that's kind of how it is. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually really true. It's like when you like respect the book the most is like when it starts to get difficult. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get... I'm trying to fit everything in. Um but if I was, if I gave myself the uh, permission to spoil the plot, this would be more interesting. But I don't want to. I would just rather try and get people to read this book because um, it's awesome. Uh, and because of that, I'm rejecting the one star review this week in favor of a positive one. Wow. Okay. Because um, apparently we can do that. Uh, <laughs> there are no I rules. Forgot, <laughs> yeah. I forgot the name of the user for this, but some user said. Um, with its snail's pace and ridiculously overlong descriptions, this book has no right to be as entertaining as it is. I feel like Peek is getting away with murder, and we, the dumbstruck readers, acquiesce like rubbernecked voyeurs. Nice. <laughs> and that's it. A very goth book for you goths out there. I'm a uh, secret goth. Closet goth. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, everybody, this has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. Uh, You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBRThePodcast, no spaces. Uh, You can also email us at SBRThePodcast at gmail.com. Give us your comments, suggestions, corrections. Send us your uh, reading list, whatever you're feeling, you know. See you next time. See ya.